The number one reason the endangered southern resident orcas are endangered today is their favorite food is Chinook salmon. So that's what they evolved to hunt. The catch? There are almost none left to catch. Because Chinook? Also the favorite food of most all the humans on the Pacific Coast. And we eat a lot more, a lot faster than orcas do. I've had people ask, if orcas are so smart, why don't they eat something else? Which makes me really wish the orcas could figure out how to track and eat anyone who asks that question. How fast can we wipe out a species? From 1940 to 1984, the Vancouver Sun newspaper sponsored a salmon derby, awarding a big cash prize to whoever caught the biggest fish each year on a specific day in August. So why did it end in 1984? Because the salmon were already getting scarce, and those 30-pound award-winning fish, even scarcer. Almost 40 years later, every day for the remaining southern residents is a salmon derby, and their prize is survival. This is Scanna, and in case you haven't guessed yet, today we're talking salmon. I'm Mark Laren Young. I've written five books for a publisher called Orca, one about orcas and another about sharks, were for a series called Orca Wild that explores the lives of amazing animals. My next book for the series is about octopus, and that's not just because octopus are amazing, but because today's guest, author and biologist Rowena Ray, beat me to today's fascinating fish and wrote Salmon Swimming for Survival. I met Rowena during Ocean's Week, where we were both reading at the Royal BC Museum, and she is a fantastic storyteller with fantastic salmon stories to share. If you'd like to make it possible for me to share more news about salmon and orcas and all things eco-endoceanic, please join our pod at patreon.com or subscribe to our Substack newsletter, which features bonus stories about all the animals and issues we cover. Paid subscription would be fantastic. Sharing our work is more essential than ever. If you haven't heard about the war between social media and the government of Canada, the scoop, social media, no longer social with Canadian media, and Google is gobbling Canadian links. Because of that, we are now publishing the Scanner newsletter every two weeks and sharing news stories about all things eco and aquatic from Canadian media outlets. So whether you're in Canada or not, this is going to be the place to find out what's happening in the water here. So please share our episodes, our Substack newsletter, our social media. We are still on most outlets, including... a. It's called Ick now. Also, every week there is not a Scanner newsletter. I'm now doing a personal Substack newsletter talking about my non-ocean-related adventures in TV, film, theater, comic book universes, and much more. Recent ones have included my adventures with the X-Files, which included meeting and animating Mulder and Scully. Also, my thoughts on whether Marvel hero Maria Hill was fridged in Secret Wars. You know, the essential stuff. And now, the scoop on salmon farms, how to save salmon, and why salmon are essential and amazing with our guest, Rowena Ray. Let's start off with, can you tell me about your work as a biologist? Like, how did you get into this world? Yeah, okay. So yes, I have a background in biology. I, when I left high school some many, many moons ago, I went uh, to do a, an undergraduate biology degree thinking that I would go into medicine uh, because that's what my parents and I had a grandfather as well who was in medicine. And I got sidetracked at university by uh, an ecology professor and a particularly, uh, well, two actually, two different professors, one who taught limnology, lake science, 
and another one who taught um, all about um, phytoplankton and algae in general. So I got really into field work. I loved going out and being out in the field and on lakes and in streams, getting my hands dirty and wet and doing things like that. So I, I sort of took the route of, of aquatic biology uh, and I did a couple of degrees, uh, quite a few degrees to become a biologist, but I realized along the path that I didn't really have the, the truly academic bent in me. And what, I'm, what I really loved doing was I loved the, um, the library research, the literature research, the reading and the writing. And so I, I, you know, I worked for a while. I did some contracts. I, I um, worked for some environmental organizations. And, uh, and then I veered off and did another degree in science writing. And uh, and then got into government for a little while, came back out, and and then I've been freelance editing, writing for over twenty years. And because my background, of course, I had all that biology background, particularly aquatic. A lot of what I have worked on, both um, writing and editing, is has been watery in nature. So and ecology, aquatic things like that. So that's how that's how I wended my way. I, my my un <laughs> my unstraight path, but I think most of us have an unstraight path, and that's good. I'm really curious. In doing a degree in science writing, what do you get to do? What do you get to study? Like, do you learn how to translate scientific terms into civilian? Yeah, you know. So this was it was a short program. It was a master's program at Johns Hopkins University, just nine months, and basically we we were a really small group. There were five of us. In, in that particular year, in that class. And we, we just wrote. But yes, we learned how to write. Several of us had come from that academic writing background where we used big jargony words and we used the passive voice and, and we had that sort of academic article paper ingrained in us. And we learned how to write for newspapers and for magazines and for, for somebody who didn't have all of that background knowledge and information. And then also explaining things in a way that was plainer, more interesting, more engaging. And we just practiced, basically. It was, it was great. It was nine months of, of practicing writing. And it was fun. And we'd go out. You know, we had assignments where we'd go out and interview some, some scientists and, uh, and then come and write a piece for our class and things like that. So. And I got to do a couple of internships while I was at it, which was kind of fun as well. So, yeah, it was neat. Very cool. So what was your first book? What was the first one that you did? My very first book was about Rachel Carson, Rachel Carson and Ecology for Kids. And this I actually did for Chicago Review Press. And Rachel Carson is one of my heroes. She's just such a remarkable person. And she had such an interesting life. And, uh, and so I, so this was my first book. So it's, it's more or less a biography of, of Rachel Carson. And it's, uh, it's full of all these, it's got 21 different activities in it, which were kind of fun to make up activities for kids to do at home or in the classroom, things like that. So that was my first, and that was Chicago Review Press. And that came out, uh, I had my book launch one week before the, uh, the COVID pandemic shut us down. So <laughs> it, uh, it, it, it was my, my, my just, just squeaked it in there before, before the world went upside down, so. Yeah, I also did the COVID book launches with the Orca books. Yeah. My yeah. my kids' debuts were all, you know, launched when the world was shut down. Mm-hmm. I remember getting 
friends go, oh, wow, you're, you know, your books are all in the windows at Monroe's. And Monroe's is closed. Yeah. So it was a weird time. But it's interesting. I actually made a note to ask you about the Rachel Carson book because she was so influential. Can you just, for anybody who doesn't know who Rachel Carson is, can you do the beginner's guide to Rachel Carson? Because she's so essential. Yeah, absolutely. So Rachel Carson was an American uh, biologist and and writer, science writer, nature writer. She actually wrote a lot about the ocean. She worked for the government for quite a while, and she wrote three books about about the ocean and food webs and all the dynamics that go on in the ocean. Her writing is utterly beautiful. It's it's poetic and it's descriptive. But she really, she, she gained a huge following, um, and we're talking in the 1940s and 50s, for her beautiful books about the ocean, and she wrote articles and so forth as well. And then her fourth book, which many people thought was a departure, but in a way it was a continuation of her writing about how much she loved nature, was called Silent Spring. And this is the book that most people, if they've, if they've heard of anything to do with Rachel Carson, it'll be this book that they probably know about. And this is the book in which she wrote about the pesticides and herbicides that were being used largely with wanton abandon uh, at that time. And DDT in particular was the one that, that she focused on the most and that, that really came to the forefront. And just writing about effects that this was having on food chains and, and also on human health and, and how, uh, how wide, widespread the effects were. So many people credit Rachel Carson with, with almost launching in a way or certainly bringing the environmental movement, giving it a huge boost and getting it going because of her writing and, and her publication of Silent Spring. And then in the background of all this was her, of all her writing, and, and she, she was nationally known in the United States and elsewhere. Um, but in the background, she had, uh, her personal life was not an easy one. She was raising her, her nephew, as her son, and then she uh, got cancer herself and passed away a few years after Silent Spring came out. So she had a lot of, you know, personal things going on while she had this all this amazing writing that she was doing. So she was just she she was soft spoken and and such an amazing writer, but very um, very influential for a lot of people. I just am really aware of her as one of the people who changed the world, mm-hmm. right? So I saw that you'd written about her and went. Wow, what an amazing person to introduce to young readers. Absolutely. Yeah, and it was it was it was fun writing about her too because I I decided to I of course I'd read her books, but I hadn't been to the places where she had lived and and where she had done a lot of her her writing. And so I I took myself on a two-week trip and this was of course I think this was in 2018. And I went and visited places that she had been and, and where she had worked, Woods Hole and, and all kinds of different places. And it was so much fun to to sort of immerse myself in her world. It was a lot of fun. And then, of course, it was fun writing the book and sharing it with, with uh, kids. So how did the salmon book happen? The salmon book. So back when I did all of my biology, I studied phytoplankton. So they're the bottom of the food chain, the, the algae. And but I had a lot of friends who worked with fish, who studied fish and and then went on to to have different um, fish jobs. And one of my uh, when I first moved out to British Columbia, as well, I grew up in British Columbia. I left, I came back, 
when I first came back, one of the first things that I did was I got to go swimming down a stream, a river in northern BC with sockeye salmon when they were migrating. And I, I write about this in the introduction of my book. And so we, you know, I was with a few other people. We put on these, these um, dry suits, masks and snorkels, and we got in the, the water and we were, you know, nose to fish snout with these salmon. And it was just such a remarkable experience. It was so different from the more sciencey, uh, you know, what I, I was taking water samples and then going back to a lab and looking for a microscope. And, and instead, here I was in this river and, and just floating downstream and these fish hundreds of them coming up towards me. And it was, it was so beautiful and so remarkable. And I just, such amazing, majestic creatures. And this was, so this was the Stalaco River, which is in uh, west of, of Prince George in British Columbia. And these fish had swum all the way from Vancouver, all the way up to this location. So they had been swimming, you know, they had swum hundreds of kilometers. What takes us 10 hours or more to drive and they'd swum all this way and there they were swimming up towards me and I was floating and here they were still swimming it was just such an amazing experience and I knew at that point I thought yeah I've, I've got to write about these fish sometime because they're just so beautiful and there's there's they're so extraordinary so that's that was that's the nugget of where it first came from can you Talk about their significance as a species, because the whole concept of keystone species fascinates me. Mm-hmm. And again, that's that was a newer term to me, and, and I just kept hearing it for salmon when I was doing the work around orcas. So a keystone species, as as you know, is is one that has maybe disproportionate importance to an ecosystem. And without them, the ecosystem would be extremely different. So salmon are they're incredibly important, and not only in streams and rivers, but also in the ocean. So they're an anadromous fish. They they hatch from their eggs in the in the rivers and and a few in in shallow lake beds, maybe. So they have a, f- a freshwater start, and then eventually they go out to the ocean as adults, and then they come back to spawn again in the rivers. So they have this this life in in two entirely different environments. But when they're out in the ocean, which they spend 80 or 90% of their life actually in the ocean growing, when they come back, they bring all these marine nutrients back into the rivers and they, they swim up often quite high up into headwaters and stream, rivers and streams. And they bring all these nutrients back, they spawn, and then at least here on the Pacific coast, they or in the Pacific Ocean, they they die and their bodies then you know, they decompose, go back to basic nutrients, they get scavenged by all kinds of different animals, animals uh, and birds will drag them up into the forest where they'll rot further. And so they, those ocean nutrients basically fertilize and feed the forests. And, uh, you know, they, they've these really cool studies where uh, scientists have been able to find, you know, the, the signature of these ocean nutrients in, in the leaves of, of bushes and trees and so forth, because they've brought all of this nutrition back and something like 130 or so terrestrial organisms rely in some way or feed in some way on salmon, whether it's on their eggs or on the, on the carcasses themselves. Uh, and the, bo- the birds eat them and then go out and, you know, poop in the forest and take the nutrients even farther. So salmon are this incredibly important species for one of the terms I love that I, I came across quite a bit was calling them ecosystem engineers. 
you know, they're bringing this, this nutrition back into the oh, forest. I like that. And then on top of that, they're, they're working in the streams as well. They're um, making their gravel nests and engineering, I guess, in the, in the stream. So, so they have this dual life, the ocean and, and the um, stream, and they, they're, they're important as a food source, of course, in the ocean as well. But bringing all that nutrition back into the forests, basically, and fertilizing the forests makes them quite remarkable and, uh, and, a, and, a, and a source for so many other creatures and plants as well. I was writing about forests and trees long before I was writing about whales and oceans and remember one of the most mind-boggling facts was learning about how the salmon nurture the trees and it was like so bears bring up the salmon the salmon feed the tree like i was just like okay as complicated as i thought nature was this is more complicated than i thought nature was Mm -hmm. it is it's mind-blowing and it really it really shows how those connections like everything is connected you know it's like the the wrist bone to the elbow bone like but it, it really is that's what that's what's going on in nature it's connection connections 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 now, one of the things that I'd really like to ask about is how we've kind of decimated the larger salmon. And I remember as a kid, the adults I knew were in salmon derbies. The Vancouver Sun used to have this big salmon derby. And my memory is people were throwing back or utterly unimpressed by salmon during the derby when I was a little kid that would probably be considered epic-sized salmon today. And one of the things that I come across, you know, with orcas eating Chinooks, people are like, well, why would they eat these small fish? And like, they didn't used to be small fish. Can you talk about what has happened there, how big salmon used to be and how big they are now? There's, There's... A lot of historical things that have happened that have, have sort of set up for, for what's ongoing and, and what's happening today. But over 100 years ago, when, when Europeans were settling in, and I'm, I'm talking about Pacific now, I also, my book also talks about Atlantic salmon and, and it's similar, but slightly different. But there was so much basically running over of streams and, and the land around streams harvesting the forests, building roads, mining the gold rush, treating rivers as conduits for, for human use. And, and so it was so much destruction that uh, a lot of salmon habitats were, were either destroyed or, or severely compromised. It was also um, in the, let's see if I can get my dates right here, but in the when, when fishing began, when, when the fish started being harvested and salmon canneries opened and there were huge, huge numbers of these salmon canneries pulling fish like crazy out of the oceans and processing them into canned salmon. And this started in California and Oregon and came up the coast into British Columbia and, and Alaska as well. So salmon were, were, were just there as this amazing resource and there were hundreds and thousands of them and they were pulled and processed. And there are some horrible photos of just tons and tons of salmon lying on docks, you know, waiting to be processed in a cannery, but going rotten before they actually got processed. And it's, it's heartbreaking to, to see those now, knowing what we know. But that was the situation. And uh, so, so there was all that history of uh, decimating the habitat, overfishing, 
building enormous dams for hydropower or for other other uses and blocking salmon habitat. So there's so many things. And then though that legacy has marched on and, and we've continued to do that now. And that's that's where we are now with all these streams that um, you know, either habitat is is lost to the salmon or is severely compromised, building on the shores, the, the, the vegetation gone. And uh, so there are so many different um, different aspects, different things that have gone into uh, to the demise of so many salmon populations. I think scientists use they use four H's when they talk about human activity. There's there's the harvesting, uh, which uh, in many cases is become overfishing. There are habitat issues, both so what I've talked about in, in the freshwater air, you know, with the streams. Also, of course, in the ocean, and a lot of our habitat issues in the ocean stem more from, our, you know, climate change is a huge issue with, with raising temperatures and, and ocean acidity, things like that. So harvest habitat, hydropower, uh, so building enormous dams, uh, which we have many of here in the Pacific Northwest, uh, and then hatcheries, which is another the fourth H. And the hatcheries stem from, so as so a hatchery being artificially producing salmon and then you know, breeding the salmon and then releasing the small fish out to the ocean to grow and then they come back. So it's sometimes called ocean ranching. And uh, particularly in the United States, these hatcheries were really spurred on by a lot of the cannery owners to produce more and more salmon. It was seen as a way of, of just having more and more of this resource. But these hatcheries, uh, many of them are so huge and they are pumping out so many fish that are not wild fish that have some genetic differences and that is creating a whole host of problems so uh so there are all these different facets there probably is no one thing that has really you know done the the most necessarily but all these different things that together have had a huge impact on a lot of the salmon populations particularly those that are in the southern end of the range so you know sort of california up to mid-british columbia on our coast and so some stocks have gone extinct altogether some have very few fish um, others are hanging on by, by a few teeth and and as you say the size of the fish in many cases has has gone down as the as the resources they haven't been able to find the food that they need or you know their food is less nutritious in the ocean things like this so it's, there's a whole host of factors that have just come together and um, really decimated populations. Now, because of all the work I've done around orcas and the southern residents in particular, you know, it's really clear that their food preference to the point where they've occasionally chosen starvation over this food preference is Chinook salmon. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about where the Chinook salmon are at? and whether there's anything we can do to help bring them back. The Chinook are, are one of the species of the, the five species here on our coast, and then there's also the sixth species over in Japan. But of, of all of them, the Chinook seem to be particularly hard hit. Some of the other species, pink salmon, maybe are doing a little better. But the Chinook salmon really seem to be particularly in trouble. And... The things that we that we need to be doing to try and ameliorate ameliorate the situation for you know there's on the ha you know the hatcheries that I talked about 
really being careful about how they operate. There are salmon farms, which are a little bit like hatcheries, a little bit different. They operate slightly differently, but they have huge effects as well on, on the wild fish. So I think getting, getting fish farms, salmon farms out of the oceans is important. Regulating the hatcheries differently and dealing with uh, freshwater habitat in terms of um, restoring streams. Uh, there are a lot of things that can be done to either to rewild some streams, of course, of them removing dams is, um, can be a, can have a huge effect on allowing more habitat to be available, allowing salmon to be able to reaccess places, spawning habitat. Um, there are some, a couple of very big dam projects that have been going on, particularly in the, in the States and, and elsewhere as well. Being mindful of, of water, you know, particularly, so right now where we've got um, very, very hot weather, generally the summer, and so low water flows and high temperatures are in streams are going to be, those are going to be problems for salmon as they come back to, to spawn later in the year. So, so being mindful of how we use our water and how we use our land, all of these things make a difference for all of the salmon and, and certainly for Chinook salmon. In your book, you mentioned the jailbreak from one of the fish farms. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because the reaction to that in Washington state seemed to be to take this very seriously, very quickly. Mm-hmm. And that didn't seem to translate up in Canada. Yeah. So this was the, the one you're referring to that I wrote about in my book was a, a farm in Washington state in Puget Sound that was farming Atlantic salmon, which is it, which is the, the species that is most commonly farmed. A few of the Pacific salmon species can sometimes be farmed, but, but generally it's Atlantic salmon, uh, which of course are, are not native to our coast over here. But apart from that, apart from the fact that they're not even a native species here, um, the whole farming of them has a host of issues that come with it. But this particular farm, uh, the nets that are hanging in the water, and, and so these, you know, the, the, the enclosures that these fish are being held in and, and being fed until they get to the harvestable size. And the nets were not being properly maintained and cleaned. And so they were being fouled by, you know, by algae and invertebrates, shellfish, all kinds of organisms, which completely natural happening in the, in the ocean. But that added a huge amount of weight to these nets. And then there was a big storm and the nets were compromised and the whole, the whole farm extraordinary photographs of these cages just buckled and thousands of fish escaped um, out of these. And that was, that did seem to be a very defining event in Washington state and, um, and fairly swift uh, legislative action was, uh, legislation came in about getting rid of, of these farms. Uh, But that has, that, that doesn't, as you say, seem to have, have happened up here, although we have had some action in in closing down some farms. One thing that, you know, sort of gives me hope because I talk to people who speak science more fluently than I do, and it seems to give them hope, are the phenomenal responses, like the, the resilience you're seeing when something like the Elwa River Dam comes down, when a place is cared for. 
Can you just talk a little about that resilience of nature? Because every time I think, wow, we're just hooped, I'll hear a story about that. Like I interviewed somebody who talked about the Elwha Dam and just go, wow, it, it changed that much that quickly. And right now, when I went to Superpod a few years ago, it was fascinating. The biggest issue in Washington State where they're talking about how to save the orcas, they're talking about Snake River Dam. Right. Right? Like that is that is the focus of everybody who cares about orcas down there. They're going, can we take out the Snake River Dam and bring back the Chinook? Mm-hmm. So any thoughts on that resiliency and how we can do that? Yeah. And it's interesting that you say that, that you've interviewed some people who you know, talked about how how quickly and how remarkably salmon have come back, for example, with, at the Elwha. I, it, for my book as well, I interviewed various different people who work in, in different capacities. And I always asked them whether they had hope for salmon. And they all, they were very categorical that, that they had a lot of concerns. Uh, there were, there are definitely huge issues that, that need to be worked on, but they all had hope. And most of them used the word resilient. The fact that salmon are still here and they, they keep on coming back. They keep persisting, which is part of what makes them such a remarkable, such a remarkable organism, such a remarkable fish that they, they're tenacious and they hang on and they, when an opportunity comes for them to return to a particular location or press farther up into a, into a stream that's been, that's been reopened in some way, they, they're there and they do it and they seem to keep on coming back. There are those populations that have gone extinct, but there are so many that still may not be particularly healthy, but they're still there. They're hanging on. And if we give them a chance, they seem to be able to take that chance and and move with it. So it's it it is it is kind of remarkable that if we would just get out of the way, if people would just get out of the way, they can do their thing and they can they can thrive. So you have that same hope for salmon? I do, especially after speaking with all the different people I spoke with and hearing it time and again from people who were actually hands-on and and working with these organisms. And I think also there is, and this is partly why I love writing for for young people, for youth, that there's a growing awareness about how, obviously, how important nature is, how we're all connected, how we need, how we need all the pieces of of our world, of our ecosystems to function. And uh, so I think there are enough people who, well, there are never enough people. There could always be more people to help and to, and to do more. But I think that there's enough passion and enough momentum out there that salmon can thrive if we just give them a chance. And since your book is for kids, you talked about what kids can do, but what can kids and adults do for salmon? What should we be doing for salmon? Well, learning is the very first thing is is reading and watching documentaries and finding finding maybe people to talk to as well but learning as much as as you can about about salmon about their ecosystems about about their importance talking with your friends with your family with your neighbors um, and then doing things like we I already mentioned you know being being mindful of water water conservation using our water wisely 
maybe joining a stream keepers group or a lake keepers group or a group that does shoreline cleanups. There are all kinds of volunteer activities that always happy to have you know, more, more volunteers coming to help out with, with different things. Um, there was one teenager who I interviewed for my book and I included a little profile of him. He's, he's in North Vancouver and he has been working with, with his local stream keepers group for several years and he helps uh, with fish counts in the in the fall, you know, when when fish are coming up these streams, and and he was so excited to share that he you know he, he could identify all the species, and um, so getting out and getting your hands wet and dirty and doing things like that, planting trees. I mean, you know, trees hold the soil, trees give us oxygen, trees help watershed. So there are lots of different things, even. Um, you know, taking photographs of, of your favorite things that you that you see outside and posting them on social media. Uh, you know, get get other people interested in in nature. I think for sometimes it can feel like there isn't a lot that we can do individually, but there is. And they may be they may feel like small things, but if we all cumulatively do some of these things, we can, I think we can uh, we can make a difference. And kids certainly can. I love those answers. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. Thanks again for checking out Scanna with Mark Laren Young. Please subscribe so you don't miss our upcoming interviews with Gloria Pancrassi on her fantastic film about the Southern Resident Orcas, Co-Extinction, author David Schiffman on Shark Miss, Howard Garrett on the story of Tokatai and the impact and legacy of orc expert Kim Balcom, and much, much, much more, including a couple of fantastic interviews about octopuses. Also, please join our pod on Substack and at patreon.com. Your support helps us pay for the tech and the human beings required to make this happen. And the more support we get, the more stories we can tell. I'd also like to thank all our Patreon patrons, including Susie Venuta, Robert Anderson, Simon McNair, Darren Lernyoung, and Yosef Wask. Scan is also brought to you by Orca Publishing, publishers of my three books about whales for younger readers, my two books about sharks for younger readers, and Rowena Ray's super book about salmon. Also, a very special thanks to our friends at Eagle Wing, Whale Watching and Wildlife Tours. They're the team who took us out to meet Granny when we were filming our award-winning documentary, The Hundred-Year-Old Whale. If you haven't seen it yet, for links to check out Granny for free, please subscribe to our newsletter on Substack. Follow us on social media and share the show with your friends since we may no longer be on social media because of Canada's war with Google and news scraping sites. Share it with everyone however you can. Reviews on your favorite podcast provider, always appreciated. If this podcast doesn't work for you, I'm Jordan Peterson, and this was the 13th Rule for Life. Scan is stationed in Saanich, BC, territories of the Saanich, Songhees, and Esquimalt peoples. Our executive producer is the always awesome Ray Manu. Scan a site courtesy of our Wizard of Web, Katie Brown. Research, thanks to the unsinkable Courtney Bell. Audio magic, courtesy of our powerful producer, Bud Lewis. Scanna's theme song, Scanna, is by Leah Abramson. <coughs>